Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. I am Brian Scott Rippy. We have a packed show today. Consider it the Louisville preview. Got a couple of different guys on. First, we're going to start with Michael Felder, a college football analyst for Watch Stadium. I found Michael because I was looking through a couple of videos trying to learn a little bit more about Louisville quarterback Malik Cunningham, and I found a breakdown that he and his coworker at Watch Stadium, Chris Green, I believe is his name, did, and I found it very, uh, very insightful. So I reached out to see if he could uh, educate the pod audience on what makes Cunningham good. Um, kind of the dangers of the inside-outside zone, Cunningham's decision-making in the run game, the importance of Ole Miss being in good position because that kid will make you make you pay if you're just even an inch or two outside position, particularly on the edge. And some other things as well as what makes Cunningham a good passer and some of the things he needs to work on, uh, you know, loses 60% of his receptions last year in terms of who he's throwing to in 2-2 Atwell and Des Fitzpatrick. So I thought this was a really detailed uh, breakdown of what makes Louisville's offense go, you know, 90% of what they do goes through Cunningham. And so I thought he did a great job articulating that. So it made me smarter. I hope it will make you smarter as well. And then we're going to go to Cameron T, Louisville beat writer for the Louisville Courier Journal. That's more of a general preview of Louisville's 2021 season outlook, what they have coming back on the offensive line. Uh, he kind of checked some preconceived notions I had about this Louisville team that didn't end up being uh, true, at least in his mind. And he would know. He covers the team every day about their secondary. had some turnover there. And uh, a couple things on the offensive side of the ball, particularly as it pertains to Cunningham as a pastor. So I thought that was a really interesting interview as well. I really appreciate both their time. So we're going to go to Felder first before we get to Cameron Teague. But before we get to that, I want to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Butlers, a new new sponsor we have on the show. Uh, They're a locker and cooler stocking service. Uh, No relation to Skybox Sports Picks, just the same name, but their goal is to make the game day experience better for you. For those of you particularly coming in from out of town, know if you're sitting in the luxury seating at Vaught Hemingway, whether it's Swayze Field, the pavilion, you've got that truncated period of time the day before the game to go in and stock your locker. Sometimes it can be a hassle getting there. can be stressful making the deadline. Let them handle that for you. All you have to do is go to skyboxbutlers.com, type in your email, your number. They've got a little box that will let you write down exactly what you need. They'll go pick it up for you and stock your locker. Boom, problem solved. You don't One less thing for you to worry about over the weekend while you're enjoying uh, a weekend in Oxford and watching some football, basketball, baseball, what have you. You can sign up for a single game. You can do it for a season. Really any kind of – whatever your frequent Ole Miss viewership is in terms of uh, coming to games in person, they can accommodate you. They'll also stock your Grove Cooler as well. It does not include tent setup, but if you tell them where your Grove Cooler is, uh, they will set that up for you as well and ensure you have all the beverages, wink, wink, that you need. Uh, to stock that up. They also have a new service this year called Condo Concierge Service, where it's a turnkey delivery service. They'll deliver groceries to your condo, even turn down the thermostat for you. All your dads out there know you get anal about that. But uh, they will send that and uh, send that to your condo and deliver it for you so you don't have to worry about that when you get in town. It's a great service run by two great guys I've known for a long time, two old Miss grads, certainly filling a need. So check them out, skyboxbutlers.com or you can give them a call at 601-850-8932. 601-850-8932, and they'll get you set up. 
uh, use the promo code Rippy and you'll get 10% off your uh, initial purchase. So don't stress about where your beverages are going to be and if your locker stocked on game day. Let these guys handle it for you. They are the professionals. Happy to have them on board. Skyboxbutlers.com. All right, here is Michael Felder. All right, we now welcome on Michael Felder, um, college football analyst at Watch Stadium, doing a lot of great work. The reason I found Michael was a video of Malik Cunningham on YouTube. He and Chris Martin did a what I thought was a fantastic kind of breakdown on, on what really stresses defenses out about Cunningham's athletic ability, Louisville's offense as a whole. Um, Michael, I really appreciate you joining us. How are you? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? Uh, doing well, doing well. Uh, <laughs> I'm up like a little earlier than I usually am, so I feel uh, ultra productive this morning. It's it's funny. So when you guys did that video, he was uh, Mikhail Cun- or excuse me, yeah, Mikhail Cunningham. And as someone who has a weird Southern double name, I'm thinking about making the switch. So do you think I have the same prospects as him as being able to switch back and forth? Yeah, I think so, man. Listen, you got it. If you got it, go for it. You know what I'm saying? I hate my middle name, so I will always be Michael Felder, and I rarely even use the middle part. But if you got the ability to switch and go back and forth, I say go for it. Yeah, as as a Mississippi native, I got stuck with the double name that doesn't make sense. And after about 12th grade, once I left high school, I was like, you know what? They get half the name right. We're good to go. I'll answer it or whatever. But um, anyway, kind of diving, diving into this. Ole Miss obviously plays Louisville Monday night, Labor Day primetime game. It's a defense that they hope is much improved. I think they've improved their talent pool on the back end, still have some question marks, particularly up front. And it's one hell of a first challenge with with Cunningham and that Louisville offense. I know they lose some production at receiver. I guess we'll just kind of start there. For a, a defense that hasn't really done it yet and they hope to be better, to me this is about as tough a test as you can get for a guy that can single-handedly beat you both with his arm and his feet. Yeah, I think the interesting part is going to be um, corralling him. Obviously, like talking about it from the Ole Miss perspective, it's going to be kind of keeping him in the box and understanding that we have to oh, – excuse me uh, – understanding that when you rush him, it's not about – and this is something that I think is going to be interesting over the course of the season for, for Ole Miss is the idea that it's not going to be about slanting or stunts or blitzes. It's about squeezing that pocket. And we'll, we'll get a chance early on to see if they can squeeze that pocket because with a quarterback like Cunningham, you don't want to create lanes and angles because those are things that he finds and that's how he can hurt you. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that shakes out up front. Um, but it's with respect to Cunningham, I, I think that he's, he's worked to become an improved passer. Obviously the key from a Louisville standpoint, the question is going to be who is he throwing the football to? because Tutu's gone, Fitz is gone. And so we're going to have to see these other guys really start to step up. And when you look at that depth chart for them uh, coming out week one, it's Braden Smith, who we know has been kind of steady for them. Jordan Watkins has got Jordan Watkins has got a chance to show up for them as a, as a young kid. So this is going to be really interesting to watch who he trusts and who he starts to throw the ball to consistently because, you know, Marshawn Ford at the tight end spot, those guys are going to have to show up to create production. And I think that's on the flip side of what Ole Miss has to do. What we have to see out of Louisville is what, what their offense looks like losing some critical pieces. What do you think specifically taxes defense so strenuously with Cunningham? And they it seems like it's a lot of, of course, RPO, but it's also a lot of inside outside zone stuff with the run game concept, just with him and his decision-making in the RPO or a read option or whatever it may be. What do you think it's specifically that he does well that taxes opposing defenses from a decision-making standpoint? Well, he puts you in conflict 
And let, let's be real, right? He ran the ball 131 times a season ago. And that was just two under their running back. So yeah. he ran the ball a lot. And what it does ultimately is it creates a, a it, it, it does, it does two things. One, it allows their offensive line. And I know they're going to miss Dwayne Ledford, obviously, but it allows their offensive line to, um, and Ledford's a coach, not a player. Like he, I think he, he went to the Atlanta Falcons, if I'm not mistaken. But what it does, what, what that zone read and what his ability to run does is it allows them to use five guys to block three or five guys to block four and then combo to the linebacker. And so that means more offensive linemen doing something because what they do is leave an unblocked guy. The second part of it is, is leaving that hanger on the side is it allows for a two-way go. Right. So there's no backside pursuit, which helps in the run game. And there's no, or if you do get the backside pursuit, that's when we see Cunningham keep. And now he can go to run. There's no contain on the edge. So you have a choice to make if you're that backside hanger player. The choice that you have to make is do I pursue down the line and get ready for cutback to stop this running back? Or do I stay wide? and maintain leverage and maintain that, that, that sort of um, contain to make sure that Cunningham does not get out of the gate to the outside. And that's something that is, that's a conflict for a defender that is very real and very tough to navigate because all it takes is one time. And the next thing you know, somebody can get out the gate and you're loose. You mentioned the, the, the linebacker and the backside hanger for Ole Miss and having that three, four front, when you said the backside hanger and, Again, I'm far from a film junkie, but it seems like that's probably going to be Sam Williams and Cedric Johnson, whether it's the edge guy or the strong or the weak side end. Is is that kind of on the right track? Like, who do you think is particularly in the most taxing situation to where if you had to pinpoint one or two guys on Ole Miss's defense where their decision making in terms of responding to whatever Cunningham does will probably decide, you know, how successful the offense is. Could you pinpoint one or two areas? Yeah, I think that obviously Sam Williams will probably be that end man on the line of scrimmage, whether he's standing up or has his hand down, doesn't matter. He's still going to be the guy that you option off of uh, when you're doing working, when you're operating from a zone, zone read standpoint. So you have to, you got to make, he's going to have to, he's going to be in conflict all game and it's about staying home and then staying home or, and it's also about seeing. And that's something that's, I don't think it's discussed nearly enough. A lot of working zone read is riding at that mesh point. And what I mean by that is the point where the quarterback and the running back kind of come to that, they come together, they converge and the balls in the running back's gut and the quarterback also has the ability to take it out of his gut and go and being able to see that and watch that and recognize, okay, he gave it. Okay. He kept it. That is critical. That, I mean, that takes eye discipline, eye awareness and, it also is about how well Cunningham does a really good job of um, last minute pulls. And it's one of those things. I think Jamie Newman was really good at it when he was at Wake Forest, when they ran that slower zone read. Uh, obviously guys like Marcus Mariota have been, was really good at it. So it's this idea of making them see what you want them to see and then doing the, the thing you want to do, which you want them to see ball in running back stomach. And then you get that in man on the line of scrimmage. You get Sam Williams, you get Cedric Johnson, you get some one of those guys to commit to um, going down line. And then you can snatch it back out and go outside. One of the things that stuck out from the video that you and Chris did was 
was you mentioned a couple of times where whether it was the backer or the end, depending on how the de- defense lined up, the guy lost the edge and Cunningham got by him. And a lot of times it wasn't even just getting like that far outside and getting to the sideline. He just found a crease once the guy just went a smidge too far inside and he was gone. And one of them was Eastern Kentucky. I can't remember who the other one was, but when you talk about losing the edge, there were two instances in particular where it wasn't by much. Like to the naked eye, it looked like he was still a decent position, but it was just one movement or one flinch too far inside and he's gone. Can you kind of underscore just how rare that quickness is for Cunningham and how how small the margin for error is because of that? Yeah, he's a super talented athlete, and he's growing into the quarterback role there, and obviously Satterfield's working with him on that. Um, but the, he, he, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about the, the margin for error is small. And that's something that we've seen across the board in college. I mean, we, you guys, listen, you guys, you, you guys have, what is it, John Rice Plumley? Like, yeah. we've seen the same thing happen with him, where it doesn't take much. But what people don't realize is this is a game of leverage, and it's a game of body control. And it doesn't matter. Like, it's great to look like you're in position, but if you've got your weight on your inside foot and you're leaning in, that's enough because you're not going to be able to get back outside that way. That's enough. That's enough. For, give me that yard. I'm going to take, I'm going to take that yard. I'm going to take this first step. So I think it's about like, if you see that guy take that one bonus step to the inside, or you see that linebacker, it's, it's the same with, and listen, when we talk about it from a zone standpoint, it's the same as watching. Um, um, it's the same as watching a linebacker get across the, the center's face. Once that linebacker's across the center's face, that running back knows I can cut back because he's too far. He's too far across, even though it's only a yard, even though it's only a step, it's too far. And so we can, I can get back in here because there's no way that he's going to be able to get back across. It's the same thing with a defensive end with, a, with an outside linebacker uh, in that zone read scenario. If their eyes lie to them, if they get caught sneaking or trying to cheat it, you can, with his quickness, with the quickness of a lot of quarterbacks, you, you see them be able to get outside because that linebacker, outside of, honestly, outside of some very special guys like like, like Julius Peppers guys, outside of those guys, it's really hard to be wrong and then still make the play right. And that's, that's just the reality of football. It's really hard to be wrong and make the play right. And... It takes you got to have a special talent to do that, and most of the guys aren't that. It's not that they're not good; it's that they're good when they're doing the right thing. There's a lot of it's really hard for for guys to do the wrong thing and then still make it happen. Ole Miss is relying on they were really bad, particularly on the interior defensive line last year, and they're relying on a couple of junior college transfers in Jamon Gordon and Isaiah Iden, and as well as Katie Hill, kind of emerging to what they had hoped he could be for a couple of years now. And that seems very important in stopping this run scheme because I guess a two-parter here is like how how important is the running back element of the inside zone part of it is setting up everything else? And then the second part from what you watched on film, what kind of grade would you give Cunningham's decision-making in terms of making the right read? Like he seemed pretty good at it. No, I think I one, I think that he's I think he's really good at making that right read. Like this guy's a, a B plus A minus guy making those decisions. He's fantastic at that zone read, like that's his bread and butter. That's where he probably feels the most comfortable. I expect to see it pretty early. What is the game? Monday. I expect to see it pretty early to make him get comfortable with the football game and then they'll go from there. Um, the other the, the answer to your other question, yes. I think that what is it? You, you mentioned Iton, you mentioned uh, Jamal Gordon, uh, Katie Hill, those guys. The key for them is is clogging it up. Um, so to not to get super like in the weeds here or technical, but 
basically what you want them to do is clog it up to make everything bounce wide. And then your players can run from inside out to make that tackle. Your, 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 uh, was Chance Campbell and your Jalen, like those guys can run from inside. Those guys could corners can come from outside in linebackers go from inside out to go make those tackles. And so I think that's going to be really interesting uh, to see those guys make plays. And then obviously you're going to see your safeties get involved as well um, as alley field players. But the whole goal is to not let that run hit between the tackles. You gunk it up in the middle, force bounce. If you force bounce, linebackers get to scrape, corners get to close down. And now you've got an opportunity for two-way tackles uh, to rally to the football. It's a really interesting way you describe that. And like, it makes a ton of sense, but you like, I'm thinking to the average fan, you've got these, you know, three just large ass human beings in the middle and you talk about clogging it up. What is not clogging it up look like? Cause Louisville should have pretty good guard play. Is it as simple as them just getting driven out and turned out? Um, you don't want to like, ultimately the goal for your defense, you don't want to lose ground. And I think that's something that's, it sounds pretty easy, but it's super critical with respect to, you have to, it's all, it's, there's, there, it, defense, there are, I, I would say from a defensive line standpoint, standpoint, there are two things that you have to do every single play. One is hold your ground, which means you don't get pushed. You, they don't take the line of scrimmage and move it from the 30 to the 35 or the 33, because that's three free yards for your running back. So that's job one. Job two is gap integrity. And so listen, if you're, if you're at the nose and, you recognize that you're going to play the the, the play side A and you're and you're going to play the, the backside A and your mic's going to take the play side A. You take that you take that backside A and you don't let somebody reach you out of your position, whether it's if it's the guard or if it's the center. You 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 make sure that you're where you're supposed to be because defense has to fit together. It's not like a glove; it's like interlocking fingers. And basically, the way that I always have always looked at it is. You have the initial three or the initial four, really, because even though if it's a three, four defense, you still have that in man on the line of scrimmage. That's a standing linebacker. And so you have those those four guys. And in between those four guys, you still have gaps. And that's where the other linebackers come into play. And then once you create that bounce because you've clogged up those gaps, now you have the opportunity for safeties to come down and fill and linebackers to cut linebackers to scrape, safeties to come down, corners to come in. And basically being gap sound is the most it sounds like the easiest part of defense but it's the part that teams struggle with the most and some of it's this hero complex where everybody wants to make a, a big play instead of making the regular play and then the other part of it is people don't um you know the other part of it is the the offense they lift weights too so they can move you sometimes and i think that's going to be really interesting to watch on monday cutting him as a passer was interesting to me i had cameron teague on uh, to the, actually the top part of this podcast on Thursday, Louisville Courier Journal beat writer. And he, he kind of opened my mind to a couple of things here, maybe some inaccurate preconceived notions I had really about Louisville's team as a whole, but two stuck out on Cunningham. The one in particular was from watching you guys' video and a couple other highlight videos, it seemed that he was fairly accurate in the kind of 15, you know, 20 yards in the end mark. And you didn't see a ton of deep balls, but then he was like, no, I actually think it's the opposite. I think that he throws a fantastic deep ball and it's the, you know, intermediate stuff where sometimes when he's standing in the pocket, his mechanics have gone out of whack and he's not always as accurate as that. And, you know, it's not like he's an inaccurate passer. He went from 62 and a half to 65% last year, even though the turnover thing ratcheted up. Just what do you see from him as a passer? And you kind of agree with the line of thinking that the deep ball is his best ball and everything kind of, you know, that and in is what he needs to work on. 
I think that when I watch him play, I think it's rough because the reality of it is, is you only get a handful of those deep balls over the course of a game. They're not an air raid team that's going to consist, that's going to throw, you know, 15 balls that are over 25 yards. Not going to happen. They're going to throw a lot of shallow things. And he is, I think that uh, the guy you mentioned, he was spot on. Like he had, if he's focused in the intermediate zone, then he's going to be okay. But it's a matter of consistent focus. And everybody views those throws as easy throws, even to the point where we hear on broadcast, I've, I've said it myself, we call them long handoffs sometimes. And the reality is those throws still take body control. They still take mechanics. And that's where you want to see his mechanics kind of shine through. And ultimately, this is what, year three for him? Let's or year four, excuse me. This is a chance to get to see it work. So it's, it's, it is those little things, they do matter. I mean, we saw that. That's like not to just because it's Louisville, but I saw it with Lamar Jackson early on throws that looked wide open, throws that were should, should have been, you know, easy layups. He got a little lazy and didn't finish those throws off. And that's something that he improved on over the, his time in college because he left some of those high. Things that should have been easy first downs got left high, and those those turned into incompletions, and that's what you don't want. And so for Cunningham, I think it's a little bit of the same in terms of – not he doesn't always leave the balls high. I think a lot of it for him is um, not dirt balls. That was more of a um, – we've seen a lot more of that from like Dorian Thompson-Robinson and even early on some Jalen Hurts. But it was – no, it's more of just an inaccuracy, right? It's not putting the, 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 whether it's the zip or it's putting the ball out in front instead of putting the ball behind. It's those little location issues that, and, and it's not just incompletions. We mentioned his completion percentage improved, but it's also about putting your receivers in the place to succeed. And I think that's going to be, that to me is the best thing a quarterback can do is throw guys open and put it out in front so that, a seven-yard pass can turn into a 20-yard game. From night, obviously, the, it's been well-documented that they the offense took a step back as a whole last year. He had turnover issues through 12 picks in 10 or 11 games. Can't remember what it was. I think he fumbled nine times, lost three of them. Turnovers plagued that team as a whole. They're like 119th in turnover margin in the FBS. And when you look at the number, I can't remember what it was. I'm actually surprised there were 10 teams or whatever it was that were worse. What did you see from him last year? Like, Can you identify a common thread in – I don't even know if it's a regression because you look at like the completion percentage and the other stuff and it was quite good. What could you identify that was different about him in 2020 than he was in 2019? Cameron kind of identified it as just him trying to make shit happen for the lack of a better phrase and then being a little bit shorthanded at times. But what did you see? Yeah, that's, that, that's the same. That's the camera. It's, it's this, there's a pressing thing. And I think we saw it with, um, I mentioned Dorian Thompson Robinson as well. We saw it with him at UCLA. Uh, we saw it with Jameis Winston when he was at Florida State after the national championship season, trying to force plays, trying to make things happen. And uh, like, in we well, listen, I talked about the mesh point, riding at the mesh point and going to make plays. Guess what? That's how you also can fumble the ball because you don't have secure because the ball's exposed. And that's how that leads to fumbles and trying to extend the ball or trying to trying to make, pick up those extra yards is also how you fumble because the defense is in there trying to rip the ball out. And and or guys are coming from places you don't expect and they can put a hat on the ball and pop, and pop that bad boy out. So, yeah, it's it, it's a pressing situation. And I think, again, we talked about it with defense, right, where you have to do the little play 
so that the offense doesn't have a big play and like not making a hero play, just making the ordinary play so that everybody can be on the same page. And I think that's going to be, that's going to be the goal. If you're Louisville is just, let's just do, if we just do our job, we're going to be okay. And for him, it's not, it's about not pressing and making sure that he's able to complete the secure his mechanics, complete those small passes, but also, when it's when there's an opportunity for a big play, if a defensive end crashes down, go ahead and pull it and let's get out the gate. Fitzpatrick and Outlaw accounted for 60% of his completed passes last Ooh. year. And it's interesting because Ole Miss is also replacing a ton of receivers as well, namely Elijah Moore, that they just kind of force fed the football at times. Whereas it just seems throughout camp with Ole Miss is they seem less concerned about quote unquote replacing Elijah Moore they feel like if they can just be adequate that they their their offense allows for enough space that they can you can just have guys basically catch the football and be fine the offense will still run and function you know pretty pretty efficiently with Louisville do you see the same way or how big of a concern do you think it is that Fitzpatrick and Atwell are gone and he's throwing to a couple guys that yeah they've been around for a while plus a couple of newcomers but it just hasn't hasn't done it consistently yet I guess if that makes sense how concerned are you about that I'm that's the thing I'm concerned about the most. That's why I wanted to bring it off up on top. Like who's he throwing the ball to and right. who are going to be his go-to guys. That's to me, that feels like one of the most critical pieces of this puzzle. So I am very curious to see what that looks like. I am not as worried about Ole Miss because I, I mean, this, maybe this sounds crazy. I trust Glenn Kiffin. And that's something that with Satterfield, I think he does lean towards relying on veterans and guys that have played. And so maybe that means a guy that's played a lot of football, Braden Smith, is the one that they expect to step up. Maybe that means, um, uh, what's his name? Mon- it's not Monford. Monford is the street I used to go out on in Chapel Hill. Um, <laughs> or in, in Charlotte. Justin Marshall? Yeah. Uh, I mean, good grief. Um, Justin Marshall, yeah. Monford, good. What goodness. <laughs> hey, it's early in the morning. I appreciate you getting up with me. <laughs> but no, it's, um, but yeah, that's that's the thing I'm going to be looking for on Monday is to see who who are his guys. Who are they? I mean, they're, they're breaking in a new running back as well. So this is going to be like, we'll get to see what that looks like too. We haven't even talked much about the run game. I feel a lot more confident in Jerry Neely than I do in Des Melton, you know? So that's going to be another interesting aspect here because I just, I don't know who for sure are going to be their go-to playmakers over the course of the season, starting with game one. If Cunningham reaches whatever, you know, you think his ceiling might be this year and kind of turns in. Because there's an argument to be made in a pretty loaded ACC from a quarterback standpoint at 19. By some metrics, he's about the third or best, third or fourth best quarterback. And you're talking about Sam Howell, talking about Trevor Lawrence. There's someone else in there that I'm forgetting already that was playing in 19 that was pretty good prospect. But if he's able to kind of get back to that 2019 form, why do you think that was? Um, I think it'll probably be because he's calmed down and settled in to the offense. Like in last year, and this is one of the things that I get it. Last year was really hard for a lot of teams. I think that Louisville has this unique, um, and it comes from Satterfield and Satterfield, obviously it comes from Appalachian state, Appalachian state. It comes from Jerry Moore is who kind of started this whole situation, but they had this real familial, um, atmosphere, uh, when he got there and that's what the, he kind of worked to foster. And last year that kind of got taken away from them because of COVID protocol. And I think that that comfort and that, that, that return to at least some semblance of normalcy for them is going to be what, probably why he's able to return to form because they're going to feel more comfortable together as a team. And it's interesting. I um, full disclosure, like I have, I know Des Fitzpatrick. I know his dad, his dad and I talk 
uh, every now and then. And he mentioned like the, the familial element of it because it was so different from what you saw, they signed up for when they went there to play for Bobby Petrino. So that was a very interesting discussion of, yeah, there we're doing this, like, you know, like it's a bunch of like family stuff that was back in like, again, 2019. And then 2020, they didn't get to do a lot of those things. And I think they suffered in a big way because of it. What do you think happens Monday night, just game-wise? Um, I mean, honestly, I am very – I think this is going to be one of those games where if Louisville can find who they like to throw the ball to, who they want to throw the ball to, I think that we could see a shootout. If they don't figure that out re- relatively early, I think we're going to see Ole Miss just put points on the board. And I think that's going to be interesting because I don't think – Louisville's defense is ready to take that next step forward. I know they have some guys they like, like Yasser Abdullah and uh, C.J. Avery, but I don't think that they're going to be ready to play across the board uh, to slow down. I th- and, and, again, one of the things I like about Lane Kiffin is his ability to um, – he does two things in football games that I really like. One, he identifies a target area, a weakness area, and he can, he returns to that well consistently. And the other thing that he does – and I noticed this when he was at USC. first. The first time I noticed it was at USC – is he puts a lot of stuff on tape. And so he's not just thinking about this game. He's thinking about the next three or four games where who are going to be watching this film to figure out what to do against Matt Corral and the rest of this offense. And essentially, he's he if he feels comfortable about winning the game, he will burn plays just to make sure that you have to spend time studying for him. And I think that's a really interesting way. We see so many teams like Matt Campbell at Iowa State so many teams play everything close to the vest in game one or game two so that they don't show what they can do. And Lane takes the opposite approach where he throws the kitchen sink at you game one. I think it was USC Hawaii is the first time I really noticed it, but he is, there's only, there's a finite amount of practice time. And if he's throwing stuff that he's never planning on running, but he's putting it on tape early, that means you've got to spend time practicing it and not time practicing what are the bread and butter plays consistently? That's a, that's a really interesting note. He is Michael Felder at In the Bleachers on Twitter. Uh, I just got a hell of a lot smarter. This was fantastic stuff, man. I, I really, really appreciate it. Where can uh, where can everybody find you and uh, go seek out more of a uh, smart football analysis like this? Yeah, so folks, if you want to check me out on at In the Bleachers on Twitter, um, I do Campus Insiders on Stadium at watchstadium.com slash live uh, every Wednesday at 6 Eastern. And, um, yeah, oh, tape don't lie, the podcast. It's literally the whole goal of the show is to build a smarter football fan. Uh, We don't talk as much about, like, game specifics as this, but what we do talk about are concept specifics. And, like, we show that the show that just came out today is going to be me talking to current Northwestern defensive back Tyler Haskins, and we talk about press man versus off man and the merits of both. We've had Roddy Jones from the ACC Network on to talk about inside zone for 25, 30 minutes. So it's that. It's a deep dive into football, and we kind of get into it and break it down. And it's a really fun show. I really enjoy doing it. A project that took me a while to get off the ground, but I love doing it. So that's it. Awesome stuff. Check it out. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. You made one smarter podcast host this morning, if nothing else. So I really, really appreciate it, man. And uh, safe travels wherever you go this season. And uh, I appreciate it. Have a good one. All right, man. Thank you so much. Take it easy. And that was Michael Felder. Really appreciate his time. I thought he gave a lot of really great insight on what makes Malik Cunningham good, some of the things he needs to work on, and what makes him really just a dangerous, dangerous dual threat guy that Ole Miss is going to have to really be on their P's and Q's in terms of limiting him. So I thought, uh, thought that interview was great. I hope you enjoyed it as well.
We're going to get to Cameron Teague now to give more of a general overview of Louisville. But before we get to that, I wanted to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. We're just the family of Skyboxes over here at the Rippy Rights Podcast. One more Skybox sponsored. I might just change the name to Skybox Rights. But who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of their industry. Football season coming down the pipe. Uh, Skybox, it's been a big week for the Rippy Rights promo code. I know you guys are using it. You need to go check them out. College football season long picks package are up. If you sign up for that right now, you get the futures package for free. So be sure to hop on that before the season gets going. Look, when you're getting into your degenerate nature on the weekends, you don't want to have the man texting you on Sunday nights, Monday mornings. You already got the scariest tough week of work ahead. You want to be texting him asking where all that money is you want. Where is that? Can you even up? Turn the tables on him. Skybox are professionals. They will help you do that with more consistency than anyone else in the industry. You don't want to fly into this blind. Casinos, books, not built on losses. You need to let the professionals help you out. It is well worth the money. You can do season-long passes, month-long, week-long. Try for a day, daily pass if you want to. I'd recommend going season-long all sports, but they're going to have a package to fit your preferred sport in your preferred price range. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY for 20% off any purchase. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. You know the drill. Greg's the best place in Mississippi, best place in Oxford, best place in the world to get meat. LB's is awesome. Oxford is lucky to have it. You need to go try the Lane Train special, Keith Carter special, all kinds of awesome sausages, seafood. It is absolutely the greatest butcher shop in the world. Really uh, proud to have Greg as a longtime partner of the various iterations of this podcast. Right now, if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, rippywrights.substack.com, you get, go in, type in your email address. You get a newsletter from me three to five times a week and discounted meats. Right now you get a 16 ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a pack of sausage for $5. That's a hell of a way to kickstart the college football weekend. Throw that on the grill, pour a drink and enjoy the games. And you enjoy a nice tasty meal for uh, multiple people really when you add in the sausage uh, at just 20 bucks. Check him out. Oxford's so lucky to have it. You're missing out. Most of you, LB's is not a secret anymore, but uh Go be sure to check them out if you have not gone by the store. So LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. All right, here is Cameron Teague on Louisville's 2021 season outlook. All right, we now welcome on Cameron Teague, Louisville beat writer for the Louisville Courier, Courier Journal. I really appreciate his time and uh, get, letting us get to a little bit to know more about Louisville as this Labor Day game approaches. Cameron, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Oh, not a problem, Brian. Appreciate you having me. So what's uh, what's happening up in Louisville? Obviously, I imagine it's your pretty typical game week in terms of prep. What is just kind of the, I guess, general vibe of, of the Cardinals heading into this week? Yeah, yeah. It's a little different because it's a Monday game. So they're having a prep. I mean, they did their um, game simulation on Monday, which they would usually do um, the week before. So, um, but it's typical other than that. I mean, their big thing, I think, as of now, I mean, I could probably be jinxing it, but they're healthy right now as going into the game. I think maybe there's like one person missing, but he's been out since the, been since the winter, I believe. Um, they got a safety back who they missed the whole offseason, which is good for them. So, um, main thing is that they're healthy, um, and, and trying to prep for what's surely to be a fast paced, high scoring, all miss offense. Yeah, this game should be exciting and it should be very fast paced. I was trying to figure out where to start with this, and I think it's probably as good a place as any is. What has the offseason been like? Because I like so I was do I was prepping for this interview and I was kind of reading some of the stuff from the offseason. 
um, just kind of about how that went because everyone had the weird COVID year. And I forgot the whole Satterfield, South Carolina debacle. Like, I feel like there was like a certain certain stories that kind of got lost in the shuffle with just kind of everything else going on in the weird college football season. What has that been like from the spring on? Because I guess for those of you out there listening that don't quite know the backstory, if I correct me if I have this wrong, but Satterfield kind of publicly said he didn't have interest in the South Carolina job. Then went and interviewed for the job without telling his boss, which is kind of a no-no unless you're guaranteed, yeah. guaranteed you're having the job. Yeah. And then had to like issue this bizarre letter of public apology. Just kind of fill us in on that story in the aftermath since. Yeah, it was, it was very crazy. I remember covering it for like two and a half weeks. Um, that Saturday when Satterfield, um, so he had talked to South Carolina on Friday and then Saturday, Friday night, Saturday was when a whole, everything starts spinning. I remember getting text Friday night that like Satterfield was gone. Like he, he was leaving to South Carolina tonight. And I was just like, Oh Lord. Um, but I, he, I, he, I'm not sure how much interest he had in South Carolina other than the fact that it was a little bit closer to home than Louisville. Um, I do believe him when he says that he doesn't want to leave Louisville um, at least not for South Carolina. Um, now, obviously, if a bigger job opens up, that's a different case. But um, I, it, it was just a crazy week when he he just hadn't he didn't tell anybody. And I think the thing with Satterfield is he came from Appalachian State where you could do that. Like you could interview for other schools and nobody would care. You can't. I mean, at Louisville, where fans have had their heart broken from coaches leaving and coming and going and bad coaches and all of that. I, I think he didn't really understand the, where the fans were and he didn't really understand that, like, Sometimes you have to tell your agent, no, I don't want to interview or no, I don't want to do this. Um, and I don't think he just he just didn't know that at the time. So, I mean, I think, I think it was a lesson learned. This water under the bridge, at least for between Satterfield and the administration, um, him and Ben Tyree seemed to, have, seemed to have patched things up um, after talking about it over the winter. So um, the big thing now is if the fans forgive him. Um, and I think the only way to do that is just to win games. I mean, I think fans 50-50 split on if they care or not about it. Um, but if you win games, nobody's really going to care anymore. That's a great point you bring up about like you can do that at Appalachian State, right? Yeah. But you can't you can't go from major pro, ACC program to SEC program and do that. And I, that was where I was going to go next. I was going to ask you just to like for your kind of read on the situation. Obviously, it wasn't like malicious would be the wrong word, right? Like it's a job that's closer to his parents from everything I read. That was kind of the sell on it. But it was weird in the sense that it didn't seem like he was. I mean, he was definitely in the mix, obviously, right? He got an interview, right. but it did never seem like at any point he was the guy that they were zeroed yeah. in on, which if you're going to yeah. do a, do something like that and pull that move, you've got to kind of be that guy. And you may bring up the Appalachian State piece, and I think that's interesting because I was thinking about this earlier today. Not only was it like you can do that at Appalachian State, from a coaching stop perspective, he's not that well-traveled. He spent a decade in various capacities yeah. at Appalachian State, then goes to Toledo, then goes to FIU, then gets, you know, uh, the OC job, then ultimately the head coaching job at Appalachian State, wins 40 games in four years, which pretty much any program in the country would absolutely kill for. It sounded like you already answered my question here, but, like, do you think that's just where it came from, from him it's kind of weird to say a guy makes three million dollars and doesn't really know any better yeah, on how to handle yeah. job etiquette. But do you think that's yeah. where that came from? Because yeah. you haven't even like seen a major right. program and like worked under someone at a major program like that. Right. And I think the thing for Scott is he's just in so many ways, I think he's just an extremely honest person. Um, and he doesn't really know, like, I mean, when you talk to him, he doesn't really sugarcoat things. He doesn't really know how to lie. And that I remember that press conference on Monday. I was like, man, you just got to lie a little bit. Like, <laughs> like lie, lie, give me something, give something else that like people, people want, just want to hear. 
Um, but that's not him. And I think that got him a little, that just got him in trouble. Um, I think, I think he can come out of it though. Um, I think, like I said, he's good with Vince Tyree right now. I just think the key for them is winning, um, which I think they have a chance to do this year. Um, but I, I think that's, that's the biggest thing to get the fan base back. You just go out got to go out and win games. Yeah. That's probably the perfect encapsulation of like being a coach in major college football. You like a skill set to have in the old holster. Oh, he's had a lie and he yeah. did. he's no. too honest almost for the profession in some ways, yeah. which is, is perfect and funny at the same time. And you mentioned, yeah. and I wrote about this in our newsletter this week, not even being connected at all. Like the, the greatest way to earn forgiveness from the fan base is to win and to win big. And, of course, he did that in year one. I remember that. I think that they played Clemson opening night in 19, and it was a hell of a lot uh, Notre closer. Dame. Notre, Notre Dame, Dame, that's what it was. And it was a lot closer than yeah, people I mean, thought. It, was a, it was a game into the fourth quarter. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, yeah. it was a great game. And, you know, they win eight games and obviously exceeded expectations because Petrino kind of left that place in a mess, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happened last year? Because I always find that when teams have met – we've done these opponent previews, and whenever they're, we've had teams that haven't met expectations – it's an interesting way to leave the question open-ended because there's so much just shit that went into last year and was so odd. What went wrong last year beyond kind of the obvious turnover issues and the quarterback regressing a little bit? What do you think went wrong for them last year? Yeah, she, um, I, I think, I think the big thing for Louisville, I mean, you mentioned the turnover issues. One, I think they started slow. They started slower than I thought they wanted, than I think they wanted to. I mean, I think people figured they would lose to Miami on game day. I just don't think they're ready for that game. Pitt was a tough game because that defensive line was just going to terrorize the, their offensive line. The big game there was Georgia Tech because they had Miami, Pitt, Georgia Tech, Notre Dame, and you needed to beat Georgia Tech before you went to Notre Dame. And they went to Georgia Tech just got stomped against a bad Georgia Tech team. And I think from there, things start spiraling. Players try to were trying to do too much. Um, and when you have the expectations and then you don't live up to them, I think it weighs on people's shoulders a little bit more than normal. Um, so that's, I think then that's when the turnover started piling up and they had a really good game against Notre Dame, looked like they were kind of getting back on track. Then it, then COVID hit and they lost their entire defensive line. And to be fair, they nearly beat Virginia Tech, Virginia Tech, yeah, Virginia Tech with like four offensive linemen, not even, it might have been three and an offensive lineman who was playing defensive line. Um, and then they played Virginia without two of their three uh, offensive stars. Um, so COVID hit bad there. And then by then the season was over. Um, they started playing some freshmen. They blew out Syracuse and blew out Wake Forest, Florida State. But um, I think right when they were getting on track, COVID hit, and then they could never recover from from there. It, this is a strange analogy, but bear with me on this. I remember taking a business law class in college, and we were going over something, and it was talking about getting like a charge expunged. And when you do something wrong, and you can get it expunged off your record, it honestly just kind of in the meantime, until you do what you need to do to get it expunged, it kind of like floats over your head, whatever the case may be for it. But if you screw up again, not only do whatever you screwed up, you get charged like that, you get in trouble for that, the other thing comes back. And I feel like for coaches, because this Ole Miss and State both had first year head coaches. And I remember being on the radio trying to like, encapsulate what expectations were in year one. Whereas if they were bad and Ole Miss had sucked last year, State had sucked last year, if they were good in year two, it was kind of like, okay, year one, COVID year, that's weird. But if they were bad again in year two, you would kind of bridge the two together and it would be like, okay, they've sucked for two years now and you wouldn't necessarily get the benefit of the doubt. Do you get the same sense with like Satterfield and the Louisville fan base? Like where is he at in terms of like, whether it's decision makers, fan base, in terms of, I guess, approval rating, because they did take a step back last year. But I just feel like if they go nine and three or something this year, that's all probably forgiven, given the unprecedented circumstances that was 2020. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if he makes a bowl game, I think people are like, okay, that's we understood last year was last year because of COVID and everything. So, um, I mean, I think people are upset or frustrated about four and seven, but at the same time, if they if he wins this year, no one's really going to care. Uh, right. I, I I think last year for a lot of people, a lot of teams and a lot of coaches, last year's kind of just a wash. I don't even think Vince Tyree and the athletic department are really thinking too much about last year. Um, Satterfield could go four and seven, four and whatever again this year. Um, or win five games and not make a bowl, and I don't think he'd be he'd be out of here. I, I think they I think they know what last year was for that program uh, and and what it can be going forward. What went wrong for Malik Cunningham off last year because he was arguably you could make an argument he was the third best quarterback in the ACC by some metrics in 2019. He didn't throw the ball a ton, but damn, he was dangerous with his feet too, and he completed yeah. a, a very I think he was like like 62 percent of his passes in 2019. The completion percentage upticked, but it was turnovers, right? He turned it over 12 times in 10 games. I think he lost three fumbles. Like, what what, what exactly could you pinpoint as far as the regression? Was it everything around him, or did he just try to force the issue? I I think he was trying to force the issue. I mean, defenses did a really good job last year of taking away Bulba's deep ball, and I think that's why you saw Tutu Atwell's production dip so much last year. Um, And I think at times they were trying to force the issue. Now, the interceptions weren't all on Malik. I mean, they were probably two – probably maybe three or four balls that should have been caught, never dropped them or picks. Um, I know there was one against West Kentucky that was a contested ball that I think a defensive back just made a really good play on. Um, and then there were a couple in the red zone that are like fourth down where like it's fourth down, you got to throw it to the end zone. Um, so like, but I mean, the most important thing, I think the biggest, most glaring weakness from Malik last year was just running with the football. Like he's really dynamic when he runs, but he had a tendency to just carry the ball with one hand and like have it really low and easy for the defensive players to make a play on. That can't happen this year. I mean, I think he was trying to make too much of a play, get too many extra yards with his legs. When you get the yards, you go down, you take the ball, and you kind of you have you have the next down. I think that's been a focus for him this year is just trying to live to play the next down with the ball. He has the capability to the, the storyline with the whole Ole Miss defense is they've they've kind of spent the whole offseason talking about how they know how terrible they were last year, and they they definitely replenished the talent pool, particularly in the secondary. I'll kind of be interested to see what they're like up front on the defensive line. But point being, Cunningham is more than capable of almost single-handedly beating them. Like, he could have one of those games where he has, you know, 400-500-something all-purpose yards where that's 300, you know, throwing 180, passing, you name it, and really just kind of terrorize them by himself. And so – I was listening to uh, Satterfield's press conference a week or two ago. I can't remember exactly when it was. And he talked about how Cunningham's worked a lot more on more of a pocket presence and not necessarily bailing after the first reads, not there or the first sign of trouble, just for as best you've been able to gauge, whether that's the spring game or the fall, how have you seen that kind of evolve? And if he's able to kind of establish, you know, improve, I guess, in that aspect, like, what do you think the ceiling is for him this year? Yeah, man, I, I think if he's able to improve in that aspect, I think global ceiling is probably eight games. I, I really think they have a chance to win eight games again. Um, I, I think the key thing for the offense, and they new quarterback's coach Pete Thomas has talked a lot about this, I think they're going to simplify things. Not, like, simplify in a sense where I think it's going to be easy for defense to read what they're doing, but, like, simplify Malik's reads where you don't have to – where he's not staring at one read the whole time. It's bam, 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 or go. You know what I mean? Or uh, I think they're doing a lot more running back in the passing game, things trying to keep on him, give him more dump downs. They didn't do a lot of underneath stuff last year. I mean, running backs the last two years instead of his offense haven't caught the ball much at all. So I think all of that will help Malik because it will open things up. It'll make people respect his arm. 
then it will open things up in the deep game, which will then also allow him to get out of the pocket and run as well. So I, I think all that's key. I think you get him in a rhythm early um, and then kind of expand the offense from there. What do you think his greatest strength as a passer is? Because from someone who watched, I guess, a decent bit of Louisville football over the last two years and then just trying to figure out as, and learn as much as I could about him you know, over the last two-ish weeks or so, he seems very, very accurate anything 15 yards and in. And it's not that he's inaccurate on a deep ball. They just didn't seem to do a whole lot of it. Like, but he, that seems to kind of be the name of the game to where he's very effective in the run game. And then he's pretty precise, you know, 15, 20 yards and in, in that intermediate passing game. What do you think his greatest strength as a passer is? And is there something you'd like to maybe kind of find out about him that you maybe not know as far as the passer this year? Yeah. I'd, I'd actually say it's the opposite, to be honest. I, okay. I think Malik Malik, in 2019 through an incredible deep ball. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was always on the money between him and between Tutu and Des Fitzpatrick. They, they just had a really good connection there. Last year was a bit different because I think teams were, the windows were just so much tighter. And I feel like they tried to, they tried to force a lot. And I mean, in the pit game, he missed a couple of wide open touchdowns. And that game was more of like, they were getting after him so much. I think he was just, so he's like, I don't have time. I just need to throw this ball. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I think the off the line didn't help him last year. And obviously defensive windows were just so tight throwing the ball deep. I think he, I would like to see how he does in the short passing game. Cause I think that could really help him if he can really get timing routes with slants and out routes and, and even just small like dig routes or, or drag routes, uh, out swing routes to the running back. I think that will help his timing. Um, and then he can get going deep. Um, but we just haven't seen a lot of it. I remember at some second half of the year last year, people were dying. We're just like, hey, listen, can he can Satterfield call a slant play or an out route? They're just he just wasn't doing it um, unless it was like third and five or third and six. Um, so I, I think he I think he needs we want people want to see that from him. And I think if he can show that and get into a rhythm, I think it will help him because I, I really do. I think when he's in rhythm, he throws a really good deep ball. But when the when he's when he's antsy and, and worried about pressure or trying to force some, his mechanics are, are off a little bit on those those balls. What do you think the biggest concern is for Louisville as an offense? Because they do have to replace 60 percent of the receptions they had last year. Right. You lose to to Atwell. Yeah. And, and and so is it receiver or is it elsewhere? Because uh, it was kind of hard to get a read on the offensive line. What, what in your mind is the biggest concern? Yeah, it's definitely receiver. I mean, you're replacing to Atwell and Desi Patrick, who I mean, I think. I, I would, I'd eat off the top of my head, probably 85% of their touchdowns. I think and the only person who had like, was I think he had six was Marshawn Ford. And he was a tight end. Um, and he had 30, so he had 25 catches last year. So I, I, that's a big question. I mean, it's how you replace two NFL receivers. Um, they have about six or seven guys that I think will play against Ole Miss and will rotate a lot this year um, until they figure out who their three or four are. But um, that, that is the biggest question for me. Um, their line is pretty good. I mean, a, a deep line, probably nine guys that could, they could play right now. They bring back four starters. So um, I, they think that could be the strength of their team this year. But the biggest, definitely biggest question is who's going to play a wide receiver. When the Satterfield offense is functioning at kind of optimal capacity, like when they're the best version of themselves, just as best you can describe it, what does that look like? Uh, run, strong, productive runs on first and second down um, and which, and just moving the change, just consistently moving the change, trying to move the change on the ground. And then you get a lot of play action. If they can be consistent and productive on the ground, making people respect and fill, and fill the boxes, that's what they did in 2019. I mean, Javion Hawkins was just untouchable. And they ran the ball and they ran behind Mekhi Becton, who was their first-round draft pick left tackle. And then they went play action and just hit 2-2 and Dez over the top. That's what their offense is best at. Um, 
So if they can do that, I mean, they, the sky's the limit for that offense. They just have to find the playmakers. Who do you think that ends up being? Um, they, they love Tyler Harrell. I mean, he's had a really big spring, a really good spring, a really good summer. Um, he kind of came out of no, nowhere. Nobody really knew who he was. He was buried in the depth chart until this offseason. Um, but he ran, apparently ran a 4-2, 40-yard dash. Apparently, they, yeah, apparently somebody clocked him at like 4.19 hand time. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, he's got real serious speed. I remember talking to the defensive uh, backs coach, and he said, he said, it's hard because you can't play off coverage because he runs right by you, and you can't press him because he literally just he's gone. Um, so it's somebody that teams are going to have to play safety help over the top. And then you have Jordan Watkins and Braden Smith. I th- think those are their their slot kind of versatile guys who are sliding outside. Um, and then Justin, Justin Marshall is a big body, uh, 6'3", 220, 225. Um, who I think can be Wood, but their big play guy is going to, I think it's going to be Tyler Harrell this year. As far as the running back position goes, you mentioned that, that Satterfield's offense, they don't really catch the ball out of the back foot a lot. What is kind of his ideal running back? Because it seems like between the tackles, I know they have pretty good guard play is something that they really rely on. And then they seem, it seems like to me, just from like the, the untrained eye view, that when they're talking about kind of extending runs outside, that's a lot of, of the quarterback. And so in your mind, like what is the kind of the optimal running back responsibility in this offense? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of inside-outside zone type stuff for them. And I, it worked really well against Wake. I think the outside, the zone run wasn't, wasn't working, and they just kind of adjusted and ran straight up the gut. And it was really, really working for them. Um, but th- that, if they can get moving side to side and give their running backs a chance to read the hole and then, and then uh, decide where they want to go, that's what they want to do. Um, and they want to have a couple running backs. I mean, Jalen Mitchell will probably start. Hassan Hall will be a guy who, who steps in as well. Um, but they love this freshman, Trevion Cooley. He's their kind of prize prize guy of the recruiting class. Um, he's the third running back in the group right now, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's first or second by, by the end, by the middle of the year, really. On the defensive side of the football, it seems at least somewhat obvious that that the secondary is probably the biggest concern. I read somewhere that they, they lost 10 guys in the safeties, Coach. That's a decent bit of turnover. Just kind of give us the lowdown on what that position group looks like. It looks it's, like they're relying pretty heavily on a couple of transfers as well. Yeah, and it's it's weird. Like, you think about it because they lost – they're two starting safeties, Russ East. They lost Russ East. They lost Isaiah Hayes. They moved Jack Fago to outside linebacker. And then they had some freshmen um, behind them. Um, Lovey Jenkins transferred out of the program. and But they brought in two transfers. And it's weird to th- say that they upgraded safety while after losing everybody, but they really did. I mean, they have two guys who have NFL potential in Ken Duncan and Quinterio Cole. And then their cornerbacks, I mean, they're as deep there as they've ever been. K- Trey Clark is an NFL guy right now. Uh, I personally think he's the best corner in the ACC. Um, long, athletic, um, just has a nose for making make, making making plays. Um, then you look at Chandler Jones and Green Vance who are coming back, and those would be the top three um, with a few transfers and a freshman in there to, to round out the top five, the cornerbacks. But I, I really, I truly think the second, after watching them in camp, I really think the secondary is going to be strength of the defense. They are aggressive, confident. They close down windows very quickly. Um, I, I think if that, that will be the strength. Now, they get a really early test. Yeah, against for sure. Corral and the Ole Miss offense, but I really think um, after this week, I, I think they'll you'll see kind of what this secondary can be. So, what do you think if there is a concern defensively? What do you think that looks like for them? Yeah, like, I what think, is the biggest one? I think, I think it's just depth. I mean, and it's really not. It's really just depth and safety. I mean, I because I, I think they're loaded. I think they have probably top three linebacking core in the ACC. Um, their defensive line is finally deep for the first time in years. I think they have a, a potential All Conference guy defensive end. Not sure about the other guys yet so far, but um, they have two safeties. Like I said, Cole and Duncan, who are really good. They have a 
four-star freshman Ben Perry, who was like the prize of their class as well on the defensive side. And they have uh, Josh Minkins, who was missed literally the whole spring and half of fall camp. He's just now getting healthy. And that's it. They, they have two backup safeties. Um, they have a corner who can cross train at corner and safety. But if someone gets banged up at safety, they do not have a lot of depth back there. Um, that's the biggest thing because they really they rely heavily on their safeties to do a lot in their defense. One of the things that Corral struggled with last year was when teams, particularly in zone coverage, disguise coverage pretty well. I mean, hell, he had 14 picks and 11 of them came in two games. And Arkansas ran a couple of zone looks that really just kind of put his brain in a pretzel, for the lack of a better phrase. The LSU game was a little – there's context needed in the LSU game because they were shorthanded. It was raining. He was yeah. really just, for the lack of a better phrase, just kind of trying to make shit happen towards the end of that game, particularly on two of those interceptions. So, but another key for Ole Miss is they're thin at the tackle spot. I think they're pretty good on the exterior at the surface level. I feel pretty good about both of them, but if one of them goes down, then Ole Miss could be in some real trouble. One of the things I've noticed about Brian Brown's defense is he's very creative in how he mm-hmm. figures out how to rush passers. They're, it's not like your traditional three-man scheme or three-man front, excuse me, in terms of how they blitz. It seems like it's more angle-focused rather than, you know, kind of your typical gap focus in it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious, like – what what do you think the greatest strength for Louisville would be from a pass rushing standpoint this year? Because they did lose a couple guys, but it seems like they're so creative with it. it, it it's kind of kind of less about having the pieces in place and more about doing your job, if that makes any sense. Right. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, they bring back their, lead, their sack leader for the last two years, Monty Montgomery. He's an inside linebacker who came off the bench the last two years. So to think that, I mean, he's starting now. Um, and he, I mean, he, he, he could be a problem for a lot of offenses this year. I really think so. Um, Yaya Diaby, and you mentioned it's interesting you mentioned Ole Miss's tackles. Yaya Diaby has put on about 25 pounds. He's 275 now. He could be of the Louisville's defense, he could be an off-conference guy. He if he has the type of year that they expect at defensive end, Louisville could finally, for the first time in years, get out the passer consistently because they'll have Yaya on one side, and then on the other side, they'll have an outside linebacker in Yasir Abdullah, who coaches on that Louisville said he's the best pass rusher they've ever seen. Um, so if, if that's the case, Louisville for the, I mean, that for the first time, they'll be able to really just run stock blitzes if they want to just put four down, four down linemen and go. But like you said, they do get creative. They, they're known to blitz the corners a lot. Chandler Jones did it a few times against Notre Dame and really got after Ian Book sometimes. Um, they're known to blitz inside linebackers outside and, and the depth at, at corner will allow Brian Brown to do that more. I, th- I think there's probably gonna be times where they're playing four or five corners out on the field. Um, and they're going to be blitzing people from different angles and and really trying to confuse that offensive line. So um, I, I think you're right. They do get creative, but they I think this is the first year in a while they have some guys that can finally win one-on-one battles where they won't have to get overly creative all the time. If you're looking at the point spread as like a way to gauge this game, it's been a little bit surprising to me that it's hung around that nine to ten point mark. Like yeah. if you if like without knowing it at all, if you'd made me guess it in the spring, I would have guessed somewhere around five to six. And it, I think it even started at like eight. Are you surprised by that at all? And then I guess like make a real question out of it. If Louisville is able to win this game in your mind, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I'm surprised it's, it's hovered around that nine. I ten point my I just I tend to think Louisville covers that. I think this is going to be a pretty good game. I really do. I, I I don't know that Louisville wins. I think Ole Miss probably wins by a touchdown or maybe nine points. Um, but I, I think if Louisville's going to win, it's got to be the defense because you just – it's. I don't think Louisville's offense is at the point right now where they – because just, just with the lack of experience at receiver, where they can go out and win a shootout. They've done that in the past. I mean, when they played Wake Forest a couple of years ago, it was like a seven-hour game that started at 8.30. 
and they won 64 to 50 something. And I, I just don't know they have the horses to do that right now. Um, I think if they're going to win, Louisville's defense is going to have to keep Ole Miss somewhere in the 28 to 30, 31 point range um, and hope the offense can make some plays. I don't think limiting, I don't think it's possible to keep uh, Ole Miss under three or four touchdowns, but I think you have to get some turnovers, get off the field on third down and really hope the offense can take advantage of some field position. And I imagine the flip side of that would also, this is state, this is like the classic TV announcer, not turning over the football, which is something yeah. that plagued them last year a little bit. I'm just curious if, if Cunningham looks like the 19 version of himself, particularly not even just this game, the season, Louisville is going to be a very fascinating kind of disruptor in the ACC. Like I, I'm kind of interested, particularly with the way the schedule shakes out, like where they end up finishing. If it is the flip side and he struggles with turnover issues again, I don't have much of a read on Louisville, like what they have depth-wise at quarterback. Is it him no matter what throughout the year? Or oh, if yeah. the turnover things persist, is he is if the, is there a leash and what does that look like? Yeah, I'm we set up a told me at ACC Media Days that if the turnovers persist, they have they they will, if they need to, they will turn it over. Um they have a backup quarterback in Emma Conley who won them the Wake Forest game when Malik got hurt. Like Malik got hurt so much in 2019 that it was they were pretty much putting snaps at certain points of that season. Um but Evan Conley didn't look good last year. I mean, he came in times and he just, his throws were off. I don't know if his confidence was there. The people have said he's gotten a lot better, had a really good camp, and he looks kind of closer to what he did a couple of years ago. But if Malik has turnover issues, then I think you begin to worry about the quarterback spot because we've seen Evan Conley, but we haven't seen him at his best in a couple of years now. So um, that, that would begin to be a question. Before I let you get out of here, looking down the schedule, Louisville, the way it sets up is very interesting. Because like from Ole Miss's perspective, it's a game they're favored in. And if they don't win, like, you know, Ole Miss has kind of been one of the, the media Cinderella's for this off season. They had an exciting offense last year. They couldn't stop anybody. I don't know how many, I don't know if everyone's quite remembering just how horrific the defense was last yeah. year. Like, I mean, they couldn't stop anybody. Yeah. But that being said, Ole Miss has gotten a lot of hype. The win total, I think, is like seven and a half. But this is a game if Ole Miss is going to like, quote unquote, meet the Vegas expectations, whatever, they really need to win yeah. this. Yeah, and of course, Louisville, it could kick like the I view it as Louisville, it could very much kickstart their season. If Louisville loses a close game, correct me if I'm wrong, but they could still be fine. Like it seems like yeah. the way the schedule shakes out, they still could be fine. Where do you kind of see the most important stretch? Because you get Eastern Kentucky in a kind of an interesting game against UCF at that back-to-back row games. I have no idea what to make of Wake or FSU. And then it seems like a couple of their toughest ACC games you are getting at home. So just kind of take me through the schedule and what you think the most interesting parts are. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think as I pull this up real quick, but uh, I think obviously the Ole Miss game, I think if you lose a close one, that's fine because you're going to blow out East Kentucky. At least you should. I think the, the important stretch for Louisville is before the bye week. You got UCF, Florida State, Wake Forest, Virginia. I think at the absolute worst, you got to split those four. I, I think the ideal thing is to win three of them and you move on from there into your toughest stretch. But I think if you split those four, you're you're probably in a, at least a decent spot to make a bowl game. Um, they, I I haven't beaten UCF and Florida State. Florida State just I just don't think they're very good. Although Louisville just doesn't play well in Tallahassee. I had them losing to Wake just because I didn't want to give them wins over Florida State and Wake. I figured I'd split them in half. Um, and I don't think Virginia's going to be very good this year. Um, but if you you have to if you split those two at least or get three, I think you feel good going into was probably your toughest slate of the, of the schedule is Boston College at NC State, Clemson. I have them getting swept on all three of those games. I, I really like NC State this year, and obviously Clemson's Clemson. Um, and then you get two cupcakes in Syracuse and Duke who should not be very good, and you should run through them before you host Kentucky. 
Um, so I, I think the key for Louisville, you want to get six wins before you play Kentucky because if you your bowl hopes are relying on a rivalry game after Thanksgiving in what's always pouring rain or really bad weather, you don't want to do that. So, um, but I think the biggest stretch is really that UCF, Florida State, Wake, Virginia, because I think all four of those games could go either way. Where do you see them finishing in the landscape of the ACC? Because I do think North Carolina will be pretty good, but I kind of like to see it again in terms of like the whole Sam Howell. Ole Miss fans are very familiar with Phil Longo. Uh, Not as fond of memories as he's currently made up in North Carolina. Not the same at Ole Miss. Where do you think they finish in the landscape of the ACC? Because really, like, I think Notre Dame maybe has a few more question marks than some people want to let on, but it seems like Clemson and then just kind of a, a whole lot of wide open behind it. I do think Notre Dame's the second best team. If you're counting that, you know, fully yeah. in the standings, I know it was a weird year last year, but yeah. like, where do you think they finish fully? Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think I have Clemson, North Carolina, North Carolina state, my top three. Um, I, I had Louisville third in the Atlantic. Um, I think you can interchange them with, um, with, uh, Boston College there if you really, really want to. Um, it's it's tough for me because I I don't know how good I I don't know how good I want to say Virginia Tech's gonna be or um or some other teams on that on that side. I mean Georgia Tech was, could could be pretty good with Jeff Simmons back again. Pitt could be pretty good. The ACC outside of like you said, Clemson, it's just a lot of what if teams. I think North Carolina will be good. I think North Carolina State's good. I think Louisville somewhere in that four, five, six, seven range however you want to put them in. And I think in the Atlantic, they're third or fourth. Um, I, I don't think the Coastal is very good outside of North Carolina. Maybe Miami, if De'Aaron King is truly healthy. Um, but other than that, it, it, it's a tough spot. I think they're somewhere in that middle crop of slightly above average teams, but not above average enough to challenge North Carolina or North Carolina State. Do you think there's a reasonable case for them to finish second in the Atlantic? I think so. I think so. If North Carolina – I mean, there's always that team in ACC that is hyped up way more than they should be, and they stink. Last year was Louisville. This year, it really truly could be NC State if they're not as good as people think they will be. Um, I think if Louisville was able to beat NC State at NC State, I think they have a really good shot. Uh, NC State, I think people love their offense just at the potential of it, not just as what from what they've seen. Um, so I, I think there's a shot that could be second. If Like you said, if Malik has to be 2019, Malik Cunningham. If he's not, they, they don't have a chance at being second, third, probably, or fourth. It shows how like 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 short I guess short term memory whatever short attention span whatever you want to call it is like you had the weird year last year where it was conference only so Notre Dame had to like count in the official ACC standings yeah. and I was sitting there looking at the 2020 standings a second and I was like hold on this shit does not look right there's no divisions right. in Notre Dame sitting yeah. in second and it like kind of froze me for a second but I am this is almost just for my own curiosity how do ACC programs view drawing Notre Dame versus not drawing Notre Dame because they're not a full fledged member of the conference like do coaches, whether they admit it or not, like when you draw Notre Dame on your quote unquote conference schedule, is it like, oh shit, really? Like how did they kind yeah, of view that? Yeah. Cause it's a unique situation. Yeah. I think it was interesting last year. I think people like the idea of it. Um, and no one's going to come out and say they didn't because ACC wants so badly for Notre Dame to just join the conference. Right. Um, I, I don't think, I mean, if you're Louisville, I mean, they had them on, on contract anyway, so they were going to play Notre Dame regardless. So, I mean, it, it's, I don't know. I think teams could go either way. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's good for the ACC to get Notre Dame in because it's somebody other than Clemson um, really competing at the top of that conference. Now Clemson's going to beat Notre Dame usually anyway, but I just, I think it's good for the conference if Notre Dame is in there. Um, not, and not just as like a rotation independent, but as an actual member of the conference. You kind of hit on this at the top of the podcast, but the last thing I have for you, 
with kind of the weird off season Satterill had. And like you mentioned, it seems to be pretty much in the rear view, but that kind of stuff can like pop back up when things go South. Yeah. If they like, what do you think a successful season is this year where, you know, whether it's decision makers, fan base, what have you is, is excited to build off of it going into next year. What do you think that mark is? I mean, I think a bowl game, as you get six wins during the season, go to a bowl and win a bowl game. I think, I think people are excited about next year. If you go six, six games and compete in a bowl game, I think people are probably fine about next year. I think people know that the offense is, it's a future based offense right now. It's not an offense that's like going to lead the ACC in anything right now. So, but if you don't make a bowl game, I think people are going to be like, okay, hold on. This is regressing. Um, and then next year becomes a little bit tighter. Like I said, I don't think he's going anywhere regardless of what happens this year, but um, you'd like to get a, at least get to a bowl game um, just to build some excitement for the program going forward. He is Cameron T, Louisville football beat writer for the Courier-Journal. I'm going to get that right eventually the first time. <laughs> At CJ underscore Teague. Check him out in the pages of the Courier-Journal, CourierJournal.com. I really appreciate the time, man. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate your insight and uh, safe travels to Atlanta. Oh, I appreciate Appreciate you having me. And that was Cameron Teague. I really appreciate his time. Uh, full disclosure on that one, I did that podcast interview in my – I'm moving apartments this week. I did that one from an empty uh, – my old empty apartment because my new one doesn't have Wi-Fi while I was sitting on a laundry basket while balancing my podcast microphone on a suitcase. So if anyone ever tells you podcasters are not athletes, I am going to flag you for hate speech. I promised four podcasts this week. I was going to get it done. You got to do what you got to do. Not a hero, but if you want to call me one, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't deny it. But uh, anyway, no, I promised four pods this week. I wanted to get that done. Fascinating interview. Tomorrow, we're going to have more of an Ole Miss-sided preview, I would say. Well, I got Michael Borky, my old radio colleague, on Talk Ole Miss. Uh, really just Louisville, the season as a whole. Then we got into Mississippi State and some SEC stuff. And then Greg and I will hop on and make our picks because we are not good at it, but it's something we enjoy doing and we do it every year. So that'll be more of a uh, Ole Miss preview on Friday with some uh, picks as well at the end. So be sure to be on the lookout for that. We'll revisit Mailback Friday next week. Not sure how I'm going to work that into football season, but I promise we will to some degree starting next week. Thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate all the feedback on the podcast, and I will catch you guys tomorrow.